0: to Ezekiel chapter 21, Ezekiel chapter 21. And the title tonight is The Sword of God, The Sword of God. Chapter 21 covers the prophecy of the sword of the Lord. And it's important to study the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel because its message is very timely and it's right on for the day we're living in, for the moment that we're living in. And even though Ezekiel's words were spoken many years ago, hundreds of years ago, it was the word of God. And as he has made it clear over and over again, almost to the point of, okay, we get it. And Ezekiel says, and we've seen this for the familiar phrase, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, and because it is God's word, it has an application for us today. It has an application for our nation. The liberals argue, argue that, that the book of Revelation and Ezekiel, they, they can't be understood. And they say it doesn't have a message for us. But Ezekiel's visions, man, they're, they're amazing. They're remarkable. But in this section of the book, we're down to the nitty-gritty. We're down to the heart of the matter. And Ezekiel's not, it isn't that hard to understand. And he's very practical for us. Chapter 21 is one of the most important chapters in Ezekiel. Because it makes it very clear that the king of Babylon is going to remove the last king of David's line until Messiah, Jesus, comes. Ezekiel's message, or a vision message, of the sword of the Lord can be divided into three parts. The first part, the sword of the Lord is drawn against Judah and Jerusalem. And it won't return to its sheath until judgment is complete in verses 1 through 7. Then he can speak of judgment to come in verses 6 through 7. The second part is the destruction of the sword presented in four stages in verses 8 through 17. And then the third part of of Ezekiel's message is King Nebuchadnezzar turns to methods of divination and chooses to attack Jerusalem in verses 18 through 27. So let's begin with the first part of Ezekiel's message, the sword of the Lord. Look at verses 1 through 7. And the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem. Preach against the holy places and and prophesy, Against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off both righteous and wicked from you, because I will cut off both righteous uh, righteous and wicked from you. Therefore, my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh from south to north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath; it shall not return any more. Sigh therefore, son of man, with a breaking heart, and sigh with bitterness before their eyes. And it shall be when they say to you, why are you sighing that you shall answer? Because of the news, when it comes, every heart will melt, and all hands will be feeble, and every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be brought to pass, says the Lord God. So the first part of Ezekiel's message is the sword of the Lord. The word sword is used 19 times in this chapter to speak. The sword of the Lord speaks of the invasion and the attack of the Babylonian army. God has has his eye on three targets. The land of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and the holy place of the temple. And the sad thing is, like it is with any war... Notice he said the wicked and the righteous would suffer. That's the way it is with any war. We see that happening tonight in Israel. The wicked and the righteous, the good, are suffering. It's a part of war. And so, again, this often happens in times of war. And notice that God said it was my sword, his sword, that he was going to bring because it was God who called the Babylonian army to punish his sinful people. They were the instrument that God was going to use to punish his sinful people. And if his people won't obey him, at least the pagan nations will. And at this point, God commanded Ezekiel to perform another action sermon by by sighing or groaning, according to verse 6, like a man that's in a lot of pain and misery. When the people would ask him, Hey, Ezekiel, why are you groaning? He would tell them, Well, it's because of the bad news that's coming. And it was, the bad news is referring to the news of the fall of Jerusalem. The news didn't come until January 8th, 585 BC, five months after the city had been burned, which was August 14th, 586 BC. But the Lord told Ezekiel that the news was coming. The, ex- the exiles. Those who were banished from their land kept the false hope alive that the Lord would spare their city and the temple. But everything that the Lord said would happen, everything that he prophesied would come to pass. And then verses 8 through 17 covers the second part of Ezekiel's message of the sword of the Lord, that is the destruction of the sword. This section, for the most part, is a symbolic expression that uses some ordinary language mixed in with the uh, symbolic language. It might be a version of some well-known song that the people would have recognized. But Ezekiel's uh, sword song here pictured judgment that was described in four stages. First, the sword is sharpened and readied for the kill in verses 8 through 11. Second, Ezekiel must cry and hit his chest as a symbol of the bloodbath that's coming, verse 12. Third, the sword struck twice, then three times to emphasize the extent of the judgment, in verses 13 through 15. And the fourth uh, picture described here is the sword was instructed to do its work, in verses 16 through 17. So let's look at now verses 8 through 11, as the beginning of the the, uh, second part of Ezekiel's message of the sword of the Lord. Again, look at verse 8 through 11. Ezekiel says, And again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say. Thus says the Lord. Say a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished. Sharpened to make a dreadful slaughter. Polished to flash like lightning. Should we then make mirth? It despises the scepter of my son as it does all wood. And he has given it to be polished, that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened and it is polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. The sight of a highly polished weapon would put fear in the hearts of those who might be its victims. This one was especially terrifying. It was sharpened, it was polished, and it was ready for King Nebuchadnezzar to bring it out and to use it against Judah. God is going to judge the city. This is terrible and it's frightful news that comes from the mouth of God. He's the one, remember, he yearned over Jerusalem. He loved Jerusalem. It was his city. They were his people. Remember the Lord Jesus, in Matthew 23, he wept over Jesus as well. I'm sorry, he wept over Jerusalem as well. Jesus loved Jerusalem. He loved the city. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 38. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who who are sent to her. Jesus said, How often I wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In his grace, Jesus came to gather the people and to save them. But you see, God couldn't force his salvation on the people. He won't force his salvation on the people. And neither could he change the consequences of their stubborn rejection. In John chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus said, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You know, when you look at Matthew 23, 37, and 38, and John 5, 40, there's no doubt here about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Because both are included in these verses. You see, God wants to save. But you have to want to be saved. He's not going to go against your will. He's not going to save you against your will. He wants to save you. But he says, you're not willing to be safe. If you want to know how terrible that judgment was, that was coming, all you have to do is read what, read what happened when Titus, the Roman, came in AD 70. And he leveled the city. Just like Nebuchadnezzar is about to do in Ezekiel's time. And God makes it clear about, his, what, about what he's going to do. And the message isn't something new in any way. Because we read in Isaiah 66, uh, 66 16, he said, For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. And Isaiah said in chapter 24, verse 17, Fear the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. So in verse 6, it says, Ezekiel was to sigh because of the judgment that's coming. And Jesus said of that day, hey, it's still coming. That day is still coming. Luke 21, 26. He says, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven, of the heavens will be shaken. Ezekiel is to sigh and he's to weep because God has now pulled out the sword of judgment. And you know what? You can look at that right now and you can see the Lord standing ready With the sword of judgment. Ready for the word of the Father. To bring judgment. Judgment is lying ahead for us today. This is not a popular message. And it wasn't popular in Ezekiel's day. People don't want to hear that kind of thing. They want to hear everything's going to be okay. We're just going through a rough spot. And we're going to get through. We're not. It's going to get worse. Before it gets better. Look at verse 12. Cry and wail, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, for it will be against my people, against all the princes or leaders of Israel, terrors, notice, terrors, including the sword, will be against my people. Therefore, strike your thigh. So Ezekiel was to act out the horror of this coming judgment. How? By crying, wailing, beating his chest. This was a sign of grief. And the expression of grief and mourning over death was for Judah and was similar to that of Amos when he mourned of the death of of virgin Israel. Listen to Amos chapter five, verses one through three. Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel or the young girl or dearest Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to rise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Verses 13 and 14. Because it is a testing, and what if the sword despises even the scepter? The scepter shall be no more, says the Lord God. You therefore, son of man, prophesy, and strike your hands together, And the third time, let the sword do double damage. It is the sword that slays, the sword that slays the great men that enters their private chambers. The warnings of Ezekiel and other prophets were a test to see whether or not the people would listen to what they were saying. It was clear that the people had despised the evidence that was given and the warnings that were given about the coming judgment. So Ezekiel was commanded to prophesy. And God said, Ezekiel, strike your hands together, probably as a sign of anger. Let the sword strike three times. The mention of three strikes of the sword might refer to the three attacks that Nebuchadnezzar made against Jerusalem. The first attack was in 605 BC during the reign of Jehoiakim. The second was in 597 BC during the reign of Jehoiachin. And the third was from 588 B.C. to 586 B.C. during the reign of Zedekiah. Now look at verses 15 through 17. I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that the heart may melt and many may stumble. Ah, it is, my, it is made bright. It is grasped for the slaughter. Swords, that, swords at the ready. Thrust right. Set your blade. Thrust left wherever your edges is in order. I also will beat my fists together and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have spoken. Here Ezekiel was talking about a greater slaughter with many that would die and many fearful. The sword of slaughter was positioned at the gates to cut off those who might try to get away, who would try to escape. And it says in verse 16, the sword would slash until all of its work was done. So God struck his hands together to show his determination to dish out judgment until his fury was used up, until it was completed, according to verse 17. So God's judgment will be quick, it will be harsh, and it's going to be applied to everyone. And it will be final on those who refuse to pay attention to his warnings. You see, to reject God... You know, when you reject God, it's automatically, you you refuse to pay attention to his warnings. To reject God is to choose sin. And you know what? When you reject God, that's guaranteed punishment. Paul said in Romans 3.23, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, Paul said, for the wages of sin is death. Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. This is what it says. Then I, John, saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades deliver up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. You don't want to be in the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is the judgment for those who refuse to listen to the warnings and the word of God. Ezekiel had spoken earlier about the six men who went forth with the sword to carry out indiscriminate judgment in chapter 9 verses 1 through 11. Now, in verses 18 through 27, these verses cover the third part of Ezekiel's message of the sword of the Lord. It covers Nebuchadnezzar's decision to use divination. Let's look at verses now, 18 through 23. And it says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, And son of man, appoint for yourself two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. Both of them shall go from the same land. Make a sign. Put it at the head of the road to the city. Appoint a road for the sword to go to Rabbah or the Ammonites and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road at the fork of the two roads to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the images. He looks at the liver. And these were the three ways of divination that King Nebuchadnezzar used. Verse 22. In his right hand is the divination for Jerusalem to set up battering rams, to call for a slaughter, to lift the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to heap up a siege mound, and to build a wall. And it will be to them like a false divination in the eyes of those who have sworn oaths with them. But he will bring their iniquity to remembrance that they may be taken so the sword of the Lord's chasing was the, was the sword of Nebuchadnezzar. Again, Nebuchadnezzar was the instrument that God used to bring judgment against his people. Ezekiel made a drawing of the road that Nebuchadnezzar was approaching on, on to Judah. The king had two choices. He could attack Rabbah, which was a city of the Ammonites, or Jerusalem. So having to make the decision of which one to attack, what the king of Babylon does, what Nebuchadnezzar does, he sought help. He sought the help of everyday magic, which was common in the ancient Near Eastern prophecy. Now, <clears throat> there were three forms of Susain that are mentioned in verse 21. The shaking of the arrows, or bellamency, which that is called. Or uh, the Bellamancy was the shaking of arrows, or the flight of the arrows. In other words, letting them fall, and then interpreting uh, the, the pattern of the fall as to what God's you know, uh, uh, judgment is. In Greek, in, in Greek religion, it was a certain way of fortune-telling by means of sacred inscribed arrows. They were either mixed together and then was drawn as a lot, or one was thrown into the air, and the fortune told by the direction of it was taken you know, as, as God's you know, uh, will. Or divin- and again, but it's a, a use of divination. Then there was the consulting the images, it said, or consulting the teraphim or household idols. So they would consult the idols. This was another method of divination. And then the third method was uh, hepatoscopy, or the examination of the liver of an animal to determine the future. So by divination, King Nebuchadnezzar (coughs) chose to attack Jerusalem instead of Rabbah. The people of Jerusalem... Refuse to listen and take this warning seriously. And because they didn't, they would be taken captive. Look at verses 24 through 27. Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring. Oh, I'm in 22, aren't I? Yes. All right. Let's go back to chapter 24, verse 27. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquities to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your doings, your sins appear because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in the land. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Thus says the Lord God. Remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. The word therefore in verse 24 brings, uh, introduces the main reason for Judah's exile. It was open, just straight out rebellion against God. Notice in verse 25, it says, the profane, wicked prince of Israel. This is a reference to King Zedekiah because he would lose his crown and the kingdom of Judah would come to an end, according to verse 26. The crown would be held and it would be reserved until he comes whose right it belongs to. And and it says, I will give it to him. This is an amazing prophecy. Until he comes, whose right it is, I will give it to him. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah. From Zedekiah down to the Lord Jesus, there has been no one in the line of David who ever sat on that throne. Ezekiel is saying that no one would ever be able to do so because the Lord Jesus is the only one who will be able to. Right now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's waiting until his enemies are made his footstool when he comes to this earth to rule. Again, this amazing prophecy, hey, it started back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. When Jacob was giving the prophecies concerning his 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen to Genesis forty-nine, ten: The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him, that is Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the people. The scepter means the king. Until Shiloh comes, speaks of the Lord Jesus. Because this is the way he was introduced in scripture. And this is why John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because it was at hand in the person of the one who had come. And the one that all the prophets had been been, uh, speaking about. So Zedekiah would be dethroned, and he would be humiliated, according to verses 25 to 27. And his kingdom, including Jerusalem, would be a ruin, verse 27. Those who reject God may turn to many other forms of of worship. I mean, what else can you do? If you reject the true and the living God, what other forms of worship can you turn to? False ones and your religious commitment to trying to find deliverance will be in false gods many false worship everything you try to do apart from god is foolish it's pointless it's empty and it's hopeless remember jesus said in john 15:5 without me you can do nothing there's no such thing as a lone ranger christian In other words, a Christian that that is one who acts independent of God. You see, to be a a Christian in the biblical sense, and today we we need to call them uh, biblical Christians. There's Christians by name. They grew up in a Christian home. They grew up in America. They're in the land of the brave, you know, free in the land of the brave. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian. A biblical Christian. That's how we need to be described because we have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and we're obedient to his word. We live his word. So to be a Christian in the biblical sense of the word involves an essential, it is a necessary spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. In the Bible, there's no such thing as a denominational church being ruled from some religion, original director at, you know, at some headquarters you know, across the, the, the state. There's no independent church, ignoring all other gatherings of believers. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. See, all are united to Christ through him to one another. You know, we're united to brothers and sisters, you know, across the world who are united in Jesus Christ. When we're cut off from Jesus Christ, there's no life. There's no life, no spiritual life. There's no life individually or corporately. And what 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 we call life, what passes for life, is really no more than a miserable miserable imitation. We're lifeless and sowing death. We're not really living, we're just existing day to day without Jesus Christ. Remember what John said and uh, Jesus said in John 15, "Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches." Those who abide in me, and the word abide means to remain or continue. So he says, those who remain in me, who continue in me, and I am them will produce much fruit. And he says, anyone who does not abide in me, who does not remain or continue in me, that is in a close relationship, is thrown away like useless branches and withers. John 15, 5 and 6. Look what happened to Adam and Eve when they chose to listen to Satan. You know, they acted independent of God. And what happened? What was the result? It brought death. And the devil is still in the process of trying to get people to act independent of God. We don't need God. That's his thinking. You don't need God. You got a brain. You can think for yourself. You're smart. Go ahead. Just, you know, you know go ahead without him. And Satan's still trying to do that today. Verses 28 through 32 covers the prophecy of judgment on the Ammonites. Let's begin with verses 28 through 29. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning the reproach, and say, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for slaughter, for consuming, for flashing, while they see false visions for you, while they divine a lie to you, to bring you on the necks of the wicked, the slain whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. So God turns to Ezekiel, God turns Ezekiel to the Ammonites with the command to prophesy about the punishment of the Ammonites with the sword of judgment. So again, the image of the sword drawn for slaughter is clearly described here. And it's going to strike with the speed of lightning. And the only purpose of that sword is to destroy and to wipe out the Ammonites who helped the Babylonian victory over Jerusalem. Now remember, well, for those who were uh, uh, here with uh, the study of the character of Lot, the, the last chapter, remember the Ammonites were the descendants of Lot, born to him by one of his daughters. Remember when they fled from Sodom with Lot and his wife? When Lot's wife was lost in judgment for her disobedience, when she, when she looked back behind her, when God told him, don't look back, and then she was turned into a pillar of salt, there, her, her daughters, Lot's daughters, engaged in immoral ways to try to save the family name. So they got their father drunk. The the girls, the daughters got Lot drunk. They had sexual relations with him. And each daughter got pregnant from their father. And they each had a child. And the eldest child, born of his, I'm sorry, the eldest daughter had a child. That child's name was Moab. And then the younger daughter named her son Ben-Ami. Ben-Ami, which is the Ammonites. Both groups. The Moabites and the Ammonites, who descended from this immoral relationship, became bitter enemies of God's people. They were known for their idolatry. They were condemned for their cruelty. And they were condemned for their pride. And they were enemies of God's people. Ezekiel here is speaking of the judgment to come against the Ammonites. But we also have the expression again, whose iniquity shall end, suggesting the end of this age. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this, he writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to put down this enemy in the last days. Verses 30 through 32. Return to its sheath. Speaking about the sword. Return it to its sheath. I will judge you in the place where you were created, in the land of your nativity. I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath and deliver you into the hands of brutal men who are skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. So the Ammonites would be judged. In their homeland, verses thirty-one and thirty-two are similar to verses eight through seventeen, because the Ammonites took part of the judgment, of, uh, uh, part in the judgment of Jerusalem. They would also be the object of God's wrath, along with with Babylon, with the Babylonians. God promised to pour out His wrath in judgment and to destroy them. In verses thirty-one through thirty-two, that is the Ammonites and their fate was worse than Judas because, you see, they would be remembered no more, it says. And this predicts the message of judgment Ezekiel delivered later against Ammon in chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. Judgment is for the wicked and the ungodly. But keep in mind, we, God's people, are not exempt. Ezekiel's generation was going to go into captivity. And that would be the end as far as they were concerned. And it would be their children who would return to the land of Israel. So we come away here from from the study of chapters 18 through 21 with a, a, a new awareness of the tragedy of rebellion against the Lord. Israel, man, they had a long history of rebellion. But the other nations weren't any better. Except, here's the thing, that Israel was sinning against the light of God's word and his providential care over his people. The other nations were rebelling against the Lord. But the thing that made it so bad was that Israel had God's word. They had the covenant with God. He protect, he, he, he gave them providential care. And they, and they sinned just as bad as the other nations. So they can expect the, the, the stricter judgment. If any people had the obligation to obey and serve the Lord, it was God's people. Because they, again, they had the word and they had the covenant relationship with him. No other nation did. Israel. Because the Lord had blessed them so much. I mean, obligated to obey and serve the Lord. But instead of becoming a holy nation and being a light to the heathen nations around them and to glorify God, Israel became like all the other nations and failed to be what God called them to be, what God wanted them to be, and that is God's light to the Gentiles. And as the church, you know, we need to consider that. We, the church, are to be a light to the Gentiles, that is, those that don't know Jesus Christ. We have His Word. We have a personal relationship with Him. We are to be a light in this dark place. And yet, through all the series of messages, all throughout the series of messages that God gave to His people was, Israel, was a theme, a, a subject, ongoing theme of Israel's hope. Ezekiel reminded them that God had promised to regather them from the Gentile nations and to give them their king and their kingdom. And and historically speaking, weak King Zedekiah was the last ruler in David's dynasty. But not prophetically speaking. Because one day, Jesus Christ, the son of David, is going to come and he's going to reign from David's throne. Ezekiel's going to talk about that subject in detail before he finishes, again, his book. In closing, Thomas Jefferson wrote in his notes on the state of Virginia. He said, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Think about that. What about our nation today? Our country. He says, indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Ezekiel has proven and defended the fairness of God. God is infinitely wise. He knows all things. And so when he brings judgment, nobody can complain. Well, Lord, you don't have all the facts. You don't understand. Oh, he understands well and he knows everything. So when he brings judgment, there's nothing that we can say. There's no way that we can complain. God has proven and defended his fairness. And he's magnified his amazing grace and his mercy. I mean, what more could God do for God's people then and now? What more could he do? Once again, in the words of Jesus, how often I have wanted to gather you, together, like a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Father, we come before you. Father, we thank you for this. Once again, the the warnings and the evidence that you judge sin, God. And that you're partial to no one. Yes, the heathen for sure will be judged, but we are not exempt from judgment. Lord, let us not be those that are not willing to be saved. Let us not be those who are not willing to allow you to have your way with us, God. Lord, may we surrender to you, Lord. Father, may we walk with you. May we be those branches that abide in you, Lord, that are connected, that we would remain and continue in a relationship with you, Lord, so that we wouldn't be a branch that, is cut off, that has withered and, and cut off and burnt in the fire. So, Lord, we thank you. We give you praise and honor and glory for who you are and for what you've done for us, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Sunday morning, we'll be back in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. We're going to go through just those two verses. And Paul begins to teach us about our enemy, who he is, and how to stand against him. And so verses uh, six, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, we learn about our enemy. God bless you guys.